Well, if you have your Bibles with you, uh, I'd encourage you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This passage is a very concise passage which will... Uh, which teaches what we will be confessing in question and answer 2 in the Heidelberg Catechism. So Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The Apostle Paul says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, thus ends the reading of God's word. May he once again write this word upon our hearts this morning. If you take out your bulletin and look with me there, as, and now we'll confess together question and answer two of the Heidelberg Catechism. And the Heidelberg Catechism is one of the uh, confessions of faith that we uphold as a united Reformed church. And this is a very clear exposition of the main doctrines of the Christian faith. So question and answer two. And this question and answer is setting uh, basically the outline for the rest of the catechism. So Lord's Day 1 can be thought of as, as, as an introduction Lord's Day. First question states where our only comfort is, and now question answer two gives us the outline of the rest of the catechism. So I'll read the question if you'd please respond by reciting the answer. How many things must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three, first, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, Well, brief show of hands, how many of you enjoy putting together puzzles? Right. Wow. About half and half. I'm, I, I do not enjoy putting together puzzles. I do not have the patience. <laughs> but think of putting together a puzzle. It's very helpful to have in view the box top, a view of the whole. If you didn't have the box top, if you lost the box top, it would be very difficult, near impossible to put together a complex puzzle. Well, think of scripture in, in some ways like a puzzle. We've all probably been there where we open up the scriptures and it feels like a thousand puzzle pieces strewn out before us on the table. 
How do we put all of these disparate parts, seemingly disparate parts, together? But we have to remember, there is the unified whole. There is a box top to scripture, something that makes sense of all of it, from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 21. And thus, there are some passages in scripture which are sort of like, a, are sort of like taking a glance at the box top paradigmatic passages that give us a sense of the whole. For instance, uh, Luke 24. Luke 24, where Jesus, the resurrected Jesus is on the road to Emmaus, and he is teaching his disciples, and he, he tells them how all of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, the writings, it all is about me. That's a glimpse of the box top. Paradigmatic passage that gives us a sense of the whole. Well, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and, and a couple other passages which we'll briefly consider are also passages that are paradigmatic, glimpses of the box top, of the whole. And all these passages set before us this paradigm, very, very important paradigm of guilt, grace, and gratitude. And these passages which put forward this paradigm are box top-like passages. They help us make sense of the core and central teaching of Scripture. So guilt, grace, gratitude. What I'd like to do then for the rest of our time, to, uh, time together is briefly explain what we mean by this paradigm. Again, briefly, in one sense, the rest of the catechism is explaining what we mean by this paradigm. And then uh, briefly look from Scripture where Scripture itself teaches this paradigm. And then I'm going to use the sermon from this morning as sort of a test case for this paradigm. So in one sense, this is Christianity 101. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Ever since Genesis 3, we know that we are sinners. We stand guilty before God's holy and righteous law. And where do we come to know of this sin? Well, the law of God tells us that we are sinners. And so boys and girls, in one sense, as I said before, the law is like a mirror. It's revealing to us our true state, our true fallen condition. Well, it's only when we understand how bad the bad news is, when we look at ourselves in the mirror of God's law and actually realize how dirty our hearts are, how, how far we fall short of the glory of God, it's only when we see how bad the bad news is that we'll be prepped to actually hear the good news of the work of Christ that delivers us from the wrath of God. Uh, boys and girls, if you can think of Jesus' deliverance in terms of, um, in, in, a, in terms of money. So imagine that God requires a million dollars to enter his kingdom. And the problem that our sin puts us in is that not only do we not have a million dollars, we're a million dollars in debt. And so Jesus comes to solve that problem. And his death wipes away our debt. So that's important. But we're still at zero. That's not going to help us get into the kingdom. We need a positive million dollars in our account. And that's where the life of Jesus comes into play. His being born under the law and perfectly fulfilling the law and crediting to us that righteousness, that's what puts the million dollars in our bank account. So Jesus' death and his life is what delivers us from God's wrath and from our sin and our misery. So that's grace. That's a gracious gift of God. 
So guilt, grace, and then it's only when we have a clear perception of how great this gift is that we'll be motivated to then obey God's law out of gratitude. And gratitude stands in juxtaposition to fear. Those are really the two contrasting motivations. Either obey out of fear of condemnation or out of gratitude because you're already a child. You're already saved. You've already been delivered. Now you seek to express your uh, thankfulness for such a wonderful gift. Again, boys and girls, you can think of uh, you know, your own rules in your parents' household. You don't fear that if you disobey a rule, you're going to be thrown out on the street and your last name's going to be revoked. You know that your identity as a a child in your parents' house is secure, and you obey as a way to um, please a father, a mother, status that can't be taken away. In one sense, imagine how frustrating it would be someone you really loved, spouse, mother, father, child, someone you really love, and you really desire to express your love to that person, but you have no idea how they feel loved. That'd be frustrating. So in one sense, we can think of God's purpose in giving us his law is to reveal to us what pleases him, to reveal to us how we are to express our gratitude to him for such a great and wonderful gift. In that sense, it's it's, uh, quite generous. And that's why, as I said before during our, our first service, that the law functions then as a lamp. It illuminates that which is pleasing to God. It illuminates how... Uh, our gratitude is to be oriented. Another way to restate this basic paradigm, guilt, grace, gratitude, is law, gospel, law. So law as a mirror reveals to us our sin and misery. Then the gospel is Jesus' life and death. And then the law comes back in again as a lamp, illuminating the life of gratitude that we're called to live according to. And so then this will be this basic structure of the rest of the catechism. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. Well, where do we find this in Scripture? We read from Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 is a very clear exposition of this paradigm. Verses 1 through 3 is, uh, or the guilt section is verses 1 through 3. And you are dead in your sins and trespasses. Paul doesn't say that you were sick, dying. You were dead. Done deal. And then verses, uh, the grace section is verses uh, 4 through 9. But God, because of his great mercy, great love in which he loved us, he made us alive together in Christ. Uh, By grace you have been saved through faith been raised up with Christ, seen the heavenly places, this whole work of salvation, even faith itself is a gracious gift, nothing we can take credit for, even our faith is something that's given to us by God through the Spirit. But then verse 10, gratitude, that we are Christ's workmanship in which God has prepared beforehand good works that we should walk in. Think about that. God not only has predestined our salvation, he's predestined the good works of gratitude that you will walk in. So guilt, grace, gratitude, a very concise exposition of this basic paradigm that we see in question answer two. Now, 
Can any of you think of other scripture passages which teach this, this paradigm? Mackenzie. Book of Romans. It's a great example. In fact, the authors of our catechism probably were imitating the Book of Romans as it was structuring the, uh, this catechism. Romans 1, 1 to 320 is guilt, is the guilt section. Uh, listen to what Paul says in, at the end of this section, Romans 320. It says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law as it comes to us brings knowledge of sin. And he says just before that, that it's preached to the whole world that every mouth may be stopped before God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, he says in, uh, in, earlier in chapter 3. So Romans 1, 1 through 3.20, is the, uh, these are the, this is the guilt section. But then from 3.21 through chapter 11 is all about God's grace for us in the gospel. Romans 5.9 says, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved or delivered by him from the wrath of God. So Paul spends chapters developing the implications of God's grace for us in the gospel. And then from Romans 12 through the end of the book, chapter 16, is all gratitude. Now that we've been saved by Christ through faith, how should we respond? And he says in 12, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says we are to present ourselves as a living or thank offering, a thank sacrifice. And he goes on to then uh, give us the law of Christ, how we should live amongst one another. So guilt, grace, gratitude. Any other passages come to mind? Cheryl? Yeah. That's a great example, and that very much is related to question answer one, which question answer two is related to as well, that we have been bought with a price. A very clear exposition of the gospel, and thus we are to live a certain way. We are to live according to that great reality, um, because we're not our own. Some other passages, we won't go there. Oh, Tony. Yeah. Yes. Some other passages that um, we won't turn to, but you can look at another time. Titus 3, uh, verses 3 through 8. Hebrews 9, verse 14. And there are no doubt many other passages too in the New Testament speak to this basic paradigm, guilt, grace, gratitude. It really is, when you start to read Scripture with this question in mind, of, of where, uh, or th with this grid or paradigm in mind, you see it's all over. It's not just in the New Testament, it's in the Old Testament as well. Think about the Decalogue, Deuteronomy 5, Exodus 20, uh, exposition of, of the Ten Commandments. Begins by God saying, I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then goes on to say, you shall have no other gods before me, and, and 
and uh, explain the Ten Commandments. Well, think about what God says in, that, in the prologue. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of bondage of the land of Egypt. Again, the, the Israel's time in Egypt was really a, pointing to a greater bondage, our bondage in, in sin. And God's deliverance through the Exodus is really the picture of salvation, and especially the greater salvation that we have through Christ. So God is summarizing both the guilt and the grace section in that short verse. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he gives them the law of God. And one of the purposes of the Ten Commandments is to be an avenue to express our gratitude for this gracious deliverance, this exodus that we have received. And in the Heidelberg Catechism, the Ten Commandments come in the gratitude section as a means to express our, our salvation and, and this gracious gift we have received. And so we see that this paradigm is all over Scripture. Not just in the New Testament, it's in the Old Testament. And it's, a, it's one of those box-top-like um, passages that give us a sense of the whole, a sense of, of what Scripture is really all about. Any questions on just the basic paradigm and, and how it's taught in Scripture or further comments on, on this? Well, as I mentioned, I'd like to come back to our, uh, our sermon passage from this morning as sort of a, a test case to try out this paradigm. As I mentioned, these passages, Ephesians 2 and, and so on and so forth, that teach this, this paradigm of guilt, grace, gratitude, it, it's giving a sense of the whole, giving a sense of a glimpse at that, of that box top. And one, uh, the, the, the reformed hermeneutic, and hermeneutic means just a, a way in which we interpret the Bible. So one of the interpretive tools that we use as reformed Christians is that scripture interprets scripture. What that means is that we take the clear revelations of scripture to interpret the less clear, the more obscure teachings of scripture. Or to think about it in, the, in, the, in terms of my analogy, we use the box top type scriptures to interpret the individual pieces. Use a box top to interpret the, the individual pieces. And so if this passage is sort of that paradigm, these passages are paradigm-type passages, this grid is a paradigm-type grid, then it's also a grid that we can make use of to interpret the more obscure passages of Scripture. And so it's helpful to, when you're reading a, a passage of Scripture, to run this grid through that passage of scripture. Where in this passage am I being convinced of my guilt, of my sin and my misery before God? Where in this passage do I learn about God's gracious gift of salvation? Where in this passage am I called to a life of grateful obedience? Now, not every passage will lend itself to, to, to um, hit every, every, each one of these these three areas, but it's a helpful interpretive strategy to use when we are reading scripture. So again, bringing it back to Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Now, how does the paradigm of guilt, grace, gratitude apply to that passage we considered earlier?
in interpretively, right? So that we go through the stages of the first gratitude just for reading. But I come to the conclusion that I can't accomplish this, right? Therefore, I'm guilty. Christ has accomplished it, therefore, there's grace. Right? And now I live a life uh, you know, reflecting that. Yeah, thank you. Very good. I don't know if you all heard that, but if, if you recall my main points, my main points were basically guilt, grace, gratitude. Jesus condemns us, guilt. Jesus obeys for us, grace. And Jesus calls us to grateful obedience, gratitude. A passage like that lends very well to, to run, run through the grid of guilt, grace, gratitude, and it helps us interpret it. Because, as I mentioned in the introduction, passages like what we went through this morning are difficult. Because on the face of it, it seems to clearly contradict other box-top-like passages. Paul's exposition about salvation being received by faith alone is a gracious gift. Or passages where Matthew 5, where Jesus says the law of God is good. It shouldn't be despised. It's applicable. It's binding. Those are box-top-like passages. So we come to Luke 14, and it's like, what do we do with it? On the face of it, it seems to contradict clear expositions of Scripture. But that's where this uh, paradigm is very helpful. It helps us make sense of this passage and uphold the clear teachings of Scripture. Now, one possible objection to what's presented here is, especially by those who... who maybe reject the idea that creeds and confessions should be used in the church um, because it somehow um, denigrates the authority of Scripture. One objection would be, okay, see, this is you reform folk implicitly elevating your catechism above Scripture because you're taking a paradigm, a grid that you confess in your catechism and you're imposing that upon Scripture. That would be the objection. Now, we should be concerned about not taking our system and imposing it upon Scripture. And the objection would stand if you could prove that our paradigm and grid is not biblical. But as you can see, this paradigm of guilt, grace, gratitude is robustly biblical. We went through many passages just this morning, and we could list many more as well. And so we are not imposing an extra-biblical system upon Scripture. We are recognizing the system that Scripture itself gives us. We are recognizing the grid that Scripture itself gives us as a means to interpret itself. We are taking the clear teaching of Scripture to interpret the more obscure teachings of Scripture. So as I mentioned, this will then be the outline for the rest of our time together. In, in the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, and next week, we will dive into the guilt section. And so how we come to know of our sins and misery and what, what we mean when we say that we are sinners and that we have been plunged into ruin. Any uh, further questions or comments on what we went through today? Mackenzie. Yeah, that's a great observation. You'll notice in our liturgy, every week we read the law of God. Not only as a means to reveal our sin and misery, but also as a guide for the Christian life. So that's why I say it functions both as a mirror and a lamp. And then we hear the gospel, which functions both as assurance of our salvation from 
our sins and misery, but also as a motivation to obey the law out of gratitude. And then we respond with, with, with thanksgiving uh, in the doxology as well. Ellen. Three S's. Which is really yeah, thank you for noting that sin, salvation, service, and those definitely highlight different aspects of it. Um, so, sin, guilt, very similar. Salvation, um, that's what we get as a gracious gift. But then the, the service indicates, like we saw in, in Romans, uh, Ephesians two, chapter ten, the life that we're called to in obedience to God's law, which is to be moti- which is which the, the attitude is to be one of gratitude. Um, so sin, salvation, service, guilt, grace, gratitude, keep both of those in mind because they're getting at the same thing and 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 both bring out helpful nuances with this paradigm. Lauren. Um, have I ever broken someone who wonders about creed and says, like, Yeah. No, that's a great, a great um, piece of advice. Use the proof text. Use scripture. Because everything that we confess is robustly biblical. Otherwise, we wouldn't confess it. And another, another thing to note about this paradigm is this is a great way to walk someone through the gospel. Convince them of their guilt through the law. Show them why they need the good news of Christ. And then show them what a life of service looks like. And what the motivation, what the attitude that should, the attitude that should mark that, that life of service. John. Yeah, I really appreciate Ellen saying that in service because in gratitude, you know, I've heard it said before that God doesn't need our good works from our neighborhood. And so in gratitude and in service, like Christ has given all the work to the Father that is needed. So our works can read through, you know. Thank you. Cheryl. Yeah, thank you. It is ironic because on one, on one hand, it seems very basic, but on the other hand, it, 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 as Cheryl said, it's something that we robustly need to recover in the contemporary church. Ashley. I think as you were just talking about it, I was thinking about the life of 
Yeah, for sure. Yeah, thank you for adding that. And, and one, one way in which we view the liturgy is the liturgy is meant to, to form habits in us that go with us throughout the week. So when we go through that guilt, grace, gratitude section of our liturgy, it's not, we're not only meant to go through that on Sundays. It's meant to be something that we are constantly going through during our week where we recognize our sin before a holy God. We, we, again, remember the gospel. Our fundamental identity is those who are in Christ and thus are motivated to live a life of service and gratitude. So that's very, very important that these are habits that are meant to mark us each and every day. Yeah, thank you for those comments. Those have all been very helpful and, and, and insightful. Well, let us come before our, our Heavenly Father in a time of prayer.